Well, I'm excited about, um, you know, what God's doing. Wasn't the um, series on walking with God awesome? Wasn't that just, I mean, I, I'm so thankful that um, God's Word is brought to us, and it's, and it's His Word that's transforming and it's life-changing that He does in our life. And this morning, I want to I take that and look at it in kind of a big picture. I want to talk about this epic story that we're in the middle of. There was a guy um, back in 1944. His name was Lieutenant Hiro Anada. And he was sent by the Japanese army to a remote Philippine island called Luban. And his mission was to conduct guerrilla warfare during World War II. He was 20 years old when he joined the army. And just to give you an idea of where this island is, if you see that little pin up there, that, that was the island of Lubang where he was sent to gather intelligence for the Japanese army. So the Philippines, if I'm correct, have like over 7,000 islands that are, that are up there. And that was one tiny island that he was put on. And he was told that he needed to go and gather in intelligence. And this was the order that was given him as he went to the division commander before he left. It says, you are absolutely forbidden to die by your own hand. It may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens, we'll come back for you. Until then, so long as you have one soldier, you are to continue to lead him. You may have to live on coconuts. If that's the case, live on coconuts. Under no circumstances are you to give up your life voluntarily. So those were the orders. So first of all, don't take your life, and second of all, don't surrender. And we're going to come back for you. And if you're a history buff at all, you know that they didn't come back to the Philippines. So they planted this guy on this tiny little island. Actually, there was a, a brigade of guys on this island, and then um, the Japanese really just never showed up. The allies came onto the Philippines, controlled the Philippines, and he was on this little island with another 12 or 16 men gathering information as a guerrilla. And so what ended up happening is because they didn't have anybody coming to give them any information, they divided into these little cells, and there's like three or four of them spread out all over this tiny little island. And they stayed there, and the war ended. And they were there, and the war was over, and um, they were continuing to gather information because they didn't know that the war ended. And he got the first um, inclination because a leaflet was um, left because another one of the cells had killed a cow so they could have something to eat. And the villagers left a leaflet that said um, the war ended August 15th. This was in October that this happened. The war ended on August 15th, come down from the mountains. And so they sat and they looked at all this stuff and it didn't really make sense to them because just a few days ago, one of the cells was fired upon by somebody, and they said, well, how could the war be over if they're still attacking us? So they go, well, that's just propaganda. We're, we're going to continue to do what we're doing because we were ordered to continue to gather information until they came back for us. And so they continued to drop leaflets. They flew over that island with the B-17 and dropped a bunch of leaflets, and they, they got the leaflet and they studied it and, and the wording just didn't make sense to them. They were very suspicious about the information. And so they discounted that too as some kind of allied hoax that was trying to get them to come out. 
And so over time, the other cells kind of gave up or were eliminated, and it was just the four of these guys who were hiding together in the mountains, collecting data, collecting um, information, and they were sent all kinds of information. They were, uh, leaflets were dropped, new, newspapers were left, photographs and letters from relatives were dropped, friends and relatives came and spoke over loudspeakers, but there was always something suspicious about the communication that led them to believe that this was not really true. Over the years, one guy finally just says, I'm leaving because this must be true. So he left and ended up going down and surrendering. The other two ended up getting killed. So this guy was by himself, hiding in the mountains. And, and year after year, they, he continued this. And here's their thought. They said, we considered people, because they would attack villagers. They killed like over 30 villagers and, and injured like 100 others. And here's what he said. We considered people dressed as islanders to be enemy troops in disguise or enemy spies. And then the proof was that whenever we fired on one of them, a search party arrived. So, you know, you, you have a skirmish, and all of a sudden, this army shows up. So what would you think? Doesn't it make sense? So it really became a cycle of disbelief. They're isolated from the rest of the world. Everybody appeared to be an enemy. And this continued. Now get this. Now he's by himself in 1974. Yeah. 1974. Finally, they, they assumed this guy was, was dead. I mean, they hadn't heard it, seen it or anything. This guy is a, a college dropout named Norio Suzuki. He decided to go to the Philippines to see if he could find this guy. It's like looking for the abominable snowman. I mean, he, he, he goes and he, and he actually finds him and he tells him the war's over. It's been over since 1945. And he goes, I don't believe it. He says, you bring me my commanding officer that gave me the orders to stay here and I'll believe it. So the guy went back to Japan, found this guy who was the commanding major Tanaguchi, and they came back, and they arranged a meeting. And you can see on the next slide, this was the meeting. The difference between when he was 20 and now um, 30 years later, they arranged a meeting for him to meet with, 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 the, um, with the major. And, and he finally realized that um, the war was over. And how devastating was it for this guy? For 30 years, he was hiding in the jungle from 20 to over 50 years old. I mean, here's a guy who was a part of a much bigger story. And that, I mean, this little tiny island was such a tiny island in the context of the Philippines itself. But think about it in the context of all of World War II. Just this tiny little island that this person was involved in. And he had information. I mean, he had some limited information. He had difficult circumstances. But he continually lived under incorrect assumptions. And even though he had accurate information, he wasn't able to assimilate that information and really come up with, with the correct conclusion. And so for 30 years, he was fighting a war that was already over. Could you imagine what that must have felt like? When finally he realized that for 30 years I'm eating coconuts, I'm hiding, I'm living in the rain, I'm miserable for a cause that ended 30 years ago. And it's so critical to understand that because what I want to share this morning is very similar because 
like he was a part of a bigger story. We as Christians are part of a bigger story. And, and we, we have, we, we're in the middle of, a, of, of an epic story that's much bigger than we are. And it's so important for us to understand that we have to have accurate information and we need to understand the accurate information and we need to interpret the accurate information so that we actually can participate in this epic story that God put us in the middle of. So I want us to turn to Luke 24. It's a familiar story. Usually it's a really good story to share as we get through the Easter season. And in Luke 24, starting with verse 13, it says, Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. So here's two guys, and to give you some background, because you know, you know the story, but just Jesus had come into Jerusalem, this triumphal entry. The, the Messiah was coming in. Everybody had high expectations. And then within a, a, a three-day period, he was tried and crucified. And so these guys are walking down the road talking about these things, conversing. I mean, don't, don't we do that all the time? We just try to figure God out, don't we? We just, we're walking and talking and going, okay, so why did this happen? And why did this happen? And what do you think happened there? And why do you think this? Don't we just, we love to speculate. I mean, we, we like spend half of our grace group speculating about why God's doing what we think he's doing and, and figuring, trying to figure him out. And that's what these guys are doing. Now, here's the thing about this that's really interesting is we really don't know who these guys are. These guys aren't part of God's, I mean, Jesus 12. He's not part of the inner circle. These guys are just normal guys that are walking back. They're disciples of Christ. And to me, that's, that's encouraging because these people weren't anything spectacular or special. They were just people who were confused, discouraged, and upset, and they needed Jesus to come alongside of them. And just as you and I, as we go through our life, as we go through this, this, this epic story that we're in the middle of, there are times, aren't there, where we just need Jesus to come alongside of us. We're not anything special. We're not part of the inner circle. We're not the special people that Jesus needs to come and, and do stuff for. We're just people that he loves. And he recognizes that there's a need, and he comes alongside these guys. And it says, as we move on into verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing them. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? I love this about Jesus. I love this about Jesus. I mean, if it was me, I would, I would go, are you kidding me? Are you like kidding me? Really? For three years, I talked to you about all this stuff, and now you have a clue what's going on? Well, let me show you. And I would go, ta-da, it's me, right? But that's not how Jesus works. I mean, this is what I love about Jesus, is he, he comes and he, he, he feels their grief. He, he lets them express what's going on inside of them. Because so often, for us to move forward, we need to verbalize what's going on. 
And Jesus is so good at saying, so what are you guys talking about? What, what do you mean? Explain that to me. Get this stuff out. Let's, let's really allow you to emotionally experience what it is that's bothering you. And he has these guys communicate what was going on. And I love that about Jesus, that he um, really cares about your hopes and dreams. He really cares about my hopes and dreams. He really cares about what's going on in our heart, and he, and he, and he feels the pain that we feel. And so he says to them, so what things? And then they say to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and in word, and the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to a sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. So Jesus lets them explain what's going on. And here's the thing, and this is, you know, when we read Scripture, part of the struggle for us is, is we already know the story. And so we don't experience it. But when we really try to get ourselves into their skin and try to understand what they must have been feeling, and Jesus comes into their situation, and, and this, this, this experience that they're going through, I mean, Jesus... He wasn't just their beloved leader. He wasn't just their rabbi. He wasn't just their teacher. He was the Messiah. Or at least they hoped he was a Messiah. And they put their trust in Jesus to be the Savior. And, and so when he died, their hope died. I mean, think about it. For them, Christ's death wasn't just some personal tragedy. I mean, these two people were facing of the prospect that maybe there was no redemption at all. Maybe there's no one to rescue them. I mean, this, this was the Messiah who was going to redeem Israel, and, and it all ended. Maybe there's nobody who will rescue us. Maybe we're hopelessly lost. And this is a challenge when we're plopped down into God's story, is that, that so often... We want to write the story, don't we? Because what did they say? They said to him, um, you know, uh, they said, and, and we were hoping that um, he was going to be, he was going to redeem Israel. For we were, but in verse 21, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And so we're, we're, we're in God's plan, but, but so often, don't we get put into God's plan and then we want to determine what God's plan is, right? We want to be the ones that say, well, yeah, this is what Jesus is supposed to do. This is what God's plan is for me. And we want to write that. We want to write that story. We want that story to happen. And here's a challenge. I mean, they expected Jesus to be the one who was going to save them. I mean, think about it. You're walking out in the middle of nowhere and you, you happen to walk into a bunch of quicksand. And you're standing there in quicksand, and it goes from your knees to your waist to your chest, and you're miles away from anybody. And all of a sudden, somebody shows up, and he goes, I'll save you. And you go, yes. And this person comes, and he jumps in the quicksand. And then all you see is this guy go, and then he's gone. And you're going, oh, great. Now what? Now what? I'm next. I mean, could you imagine? That's kind of how they felt. Here is Jesus who is going to be their Savior. And he comes into the world and he says, don't worry, I'm the long-promised Savior. I'll rescue you. 
So he comes into Jerusalem. They're laying down palm, all kinds of great stuff. And then what happens? He's, he, he dies. Could you imagine how they felt? I mean, if we, can, if we can get that kind of feeling, that has to be devastated. No wonder they're bummed. No wonder they're downcast. But, but here's the thing. And, and this is the stuff that if we can get our arms around this, um, it will just be so encouraging for us. Because as we read, they said, you know, um, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And then he, they go on and it says, indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things have happened. Since these things happened. But also some woman among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said. But him they did not see. They had all the information that they needed, didn't they? I mean, it's the third day since this has happened. And they realized the significance of the third day because Jesus repeatedly told them that he would be killed and that he would rise on the third day. And they admitted that there was eye accounts of people who came to the tomb and it was empty and there was angels who told them that he rose from the dead. So they had all this information and the challenge is, do they accurately assimilate the information and use the information? But they can't because... They're so deeply embedded in their grief and their expectations and what they thought Jesus was supposed to do that they couldn't even understand what Jesus' plan was. They couldn't even experience the epic story that they're in the middle of. Does that happen to us so often? See, Jesus told them. The Old Testament told them. Everything they've ever been taught about the third day is coming true. And all they can think about is, my hope died. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. So, so Jesus is with these guys who are totally bummed, who aren't getting it. Who, who, who when, when he says, what are you talking about? They were so grieved that they just stopped. And they couldn't even go on anymore. And they had to go, man, are you the only one who doesn't know what's going on? So what does Jesus say? In verse 25, he says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So Jesus has them communicate how he feels. He doesn't minimize their grief. He, he embraces their grief. And then what does he do? He comes and he gives them a Bible study. <laughs> a Bible study. The whole Bible is about this, Jesus says. The whole Bible for thousands of years, its whole message is Christ will come, Christ will suffer, and then enter into his glory. It's not what we'd expect. I mean, first he comes alongside of them and says, hey, so what's going on? You guys look like you're a little discouraged. And he hears their sorrows. He knows their sorrows. He still wants to hear what's going on. He knows already 
what they're feeling, but he wants to hear it from them. He wants to know how they're feeling. And then when he makes himself known, isn't it amazing how he does it? I mean, think about it. If you were Christ and you had risen from the dead and you were coming as a redeemed Savior and you were walking with these guys, what would you do? Would you, I'd come and go, ah, here I am. Look at this. And I'd vanish and come back and vanish and come back, you know? I'm like, I'd do stuff. It happened. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, think about this. You've, you've just defeated death. You've just conquered Satan. You've obliterated sin. You've fulfilled the scriptures. You've been vindicated by the Father. You've come back in a redeemed body. You're the Savior and the Messiah victorious. And what does he do? He has a Bible study. A Bible study. Now, Doug would love that because he would do that on Saturday morning. It would take him like 14 years to get through it. But, but that's the beauty of it. He... he, he he, re- he reveals himself through Scripture. Haven't we done that? God, if you would just show yourself to me, then I would know. If you would just tell me for sure this is what I need to do, then I would just know. I mean, if, if somehow you could just let me know, then I would, just, I would just get after it. And so how does Jesus do it? He has a Bible study. He takes them throughout all of Scripture. The whole Bible. Even when he's right there with them in resurrected glory, he communicates who he is through Scripture. To me, that is really unbelievable. That's so exciting because this is all a part of the epic, epic story that God's unfolding. Jesus is the hero. He's the victorious hero that is a part of the story that's redeeming people. Moses was a part of it. The Old Testament was a part of it. Jesus was a part of it. You and I are a part of it. See, we're we're just not here. See, part of the exciting part of walking with Jesus is we're just not plopped down here and then this is is some isolated thing that's going on, that we're living life in some kind of a vacuum. God has put us in the middle of the story that he's been unfolding from before creation. And we're a part of that story. And Scripture allows us to be people who participate in what God's doing. And life sometimes gets discouraging, doesn't it? It gets frustrating. Things that we thought were supposed to happen don't happen. Things that we are counting on don't work out. Things that don't make sense to us, we just struggle with. But when we can walk through that and know that as Jesus comes alongside of us, he is going to allow us to understand how his story continually unfolds. Because he's God, he's Lord, and he's, making, he's bringing things to his um, conclusion. And we're a part of a story doing things that are so much more significant than we could ever imagine. Because here's what happens with these guys. Jesus explains this stuff to him, and he, and, he, and he goes through all of Scripture, and then it says in verse 28 that as they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther, but they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over, so he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began to give it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And then they said to one another, 
were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? See, it wasn't, wasn't that amazing when he did this miracle and he just kind of made the sun stop or he, he really proved that he was Messiah by, you know, I mean, it was, he explained the scriptures to us. And when the word of God comes alive in us and it, it just, we read it and it makes sense and we go, oh, oh, then we, we can't contain ourselves. This stuff, we just want to tell anybody that we could talk to. And so these guys... They got up and went back to Jerusalem. It said the very hour, it was too late for Jesus to go forward, but it wasn't too late for them to go back. And they found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them and saying, they were saying, hey, the Lord really risen. He, he, Peter seen them. And then they go, oh, yeah, so have we. And they began to relate their experience on the road and how they recognized them in the breaking of the bread. And here's the thing. The recognition of Jesus wasn't just, oh, that's Jesus. It was Jesus, in all his significance as the Messiah, they recognized through Scripture that he was a son of God and that he was a risen Lord. When that truth became a reality to them, that was transformational. And when we as Christians understand that, that God has placed us, that we've been born in an epic story that's been going on for centuries since before the beginning of creation, and it is going to continue to go on. And the exciting part about that is every one of us has been created uniquely. You are the only you that will ever be created. Now, why is God like that? He has a plan for us. We're personally um, related to, in a relationship with him. And we're gifted. As Doug talked about earlier, God gifts us uniquely because he has a plan that he wants to execute, and we get to be a part of that. It just amazes me that God lets me be a part of his plan. Because I don't know if you're like this, but you know, sometimes it's just easier to do it yourself. Do you ever just have your kids do something? You go, just, oh, just stop. Just let me do it. My wife does that all the time. You know? Dave, just stop. If you aren't going to do it right, just let me do it, you know? Don't we do that all the time? God would be doing that all the time with me. Dave, just stop, 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 stop. Just stop talking. Just let me do it. But he lets us be a part of his plan. He lets us be a part of his plan. And I loved what Doug shared last week because this is the exciting part because so often we want to know, so what exactly is it I'm supposed to do? So how does this work? So my car broke down. So how does that really help all things work together for good? And we try to figure it out. But the reality is, is, is God's plan is for us to be conformed to his image. And there are things that work out that are things. I mean, there may be situations where we're in a trying place. Where we may be sick and we may be, people will see Jesus in us. And people may come to the Lord and we may not know till glory that 10,000 people became Christians because I talked to that person you know, and gave him a dollar. On, I'm a, who knows what God does? We don't know that. There's a big story that's going on that we don't know. We just don't know. But what we do know is that, that God has called us to be conformed to his image and that everything that happens in our life is a process of us becoming transformed into his image. And we also know that we've been born in a battle. 
There's a war going on. The war was going on before we were born, and it's probably going to go on after we die. It's an epic battle that's going on. Satan is at war. So, so often as Christians, and, and this confuses me, but I, I, I'm kind of like this, is because I, I go, well, they're shooting at me. This life is hard. This went wrong. I mean, this went wrong. I mean, this doesn't make sense. I mean, why did this? We're at war. And when we're at war, there's, there's, there's spiritual battles that go on. There's spiritual warfare that goes on. And God is executing this plan. We get to be a part of that. To me, that is so encouraging because now we can walk with Jesus knowing that we've already won. The war is already over. The question is, am I going to take the information that God has given us and am I going to use that information to follow him and to walk with him? It was such a great illustration that he used last Sunday. I mean, that homeless guy was so great because God had this gourmet, or this, this, this gourmet restaurant owner. If you weren't here last Sunday, listen to the message. But the gourmet owner um, had this feast for this guy, and he was digging stuff out of the dumpster. And Doug was saying he's sitting there with, with, with chicken bones, picking the chicken off the chicken bones. And the guy says, no, come on, I have this feast for you. And he didn't want to go. And this is the thing that really hit me, is why did he not want to go? Because he thought that guy was actually coming to get his chicken bone. Is that, does that, is that amazing? Oh, no, you just want my chicken bone. I mean, this guy was on the island for 30 years because he thought those people were his enemy. Satan does that to us. He gets us believing that God just wants to take our chicken bone. And we believe him. We believe him. No, I, I don't want to do that because then God's going to take this from me. And God says, no, 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 you don't understand. I got something so much better for you. Just walk with me. See, I am so thankful. I am so thankful that we are part of a church where we have a pastor that just rightly divides the word of God. And when we come on Sunday morning, we don't have to wonder if what he's teaching is true. We know because he works hard at making sure that what he brings to us is the truth. And if we, and if we take that to heart and really allow the Holy Spirit to take what is brought to us scripturally and use that to transform our lives, we will be a part of this big story that God has us in, in, in the middle of and we are going to be used by him in ways that we may not recognize, we may not understand until glory, but God's awesome, victorious presence is going to use us. There's just no doubt in my mind. And it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what we're going through today. God's in control. It's God's plan. If we will start trying to figure out his plan and try to make it our plan and just let him execute his plan and just work at understanding him, knowing him, obeying him, and following him, we will be so much more joyful, have so much more peace, have so much more joy, because we're trusting in God, not our circumstances, right? It's not about our circumstances, it's about our God. And when we understand that we're in the middle of something that is so much bigger than us, so much bigger than us, we can't possibly conceive what God's doing. All we can do is go, well, praise the Lord that I'm on the right side. Amen? Amen.